Hello and welcome to the ET PhD team podcast, the podcast here to help you with your relationship with food and body by giving you evidence-based techniques to support yourself with a sprinkling of feminism, a dash of dismantling diet culture and a side of vulnerability as we share our own messy lives with you. I'm Emilia, a registered nutritionist and PhD with the sole purpose of making your life happier and healthier. If you love it, please do go wild and share it. And if you're ready for support with our coaching, details are in the show notes. Hello and welcome to episode number 178 of the ETPHD team podcast. In this episode, we're covering the timeline of improving your relationship with food. How long should you expect it to take? And, you know, what does that look like as the time goes by? Well, hopefully we're going to have the answer for you. Hello and welcome to this episode of the ETPHD team podcast on the timeline of improving your relationship with food. We really wanted to cover this topic because we work with clients ranging from three months all the way up to four years, I think is my longest serving client. What's your, who's yours? Three years? Yeah, three so years. three or four years currently and probably in future longer than that. And so it can be really hard to decipher, I think, from the outside what is necessary and what is a necessary timeline for improving your relationship with food. So we would love to start this prod- podcast by saying it's only going to take you three months and then everything is going to be perfect. Um, unfortunately, that is not the case. So Anna, you work with more clients than me in general at the mm-hmm. moment. Um, what do you see? Like, So say, let's say three months in, what's the general vibe of people and what they say after about three months? <clears throat> general vibe. General vibe, general vibe is good, but I think sometimes there is the expectation that they'll be further along than they actually are, and that's not because they haven't been doing any of the work, but I think, I guess, perhaps social media, potentially other coaches have led them to believe that they can be fixed in eight. 10, 12 weeks and it's just unrealistic. Yeah, I think eight week transformations don't do anyone any favours because we all just want something really quick. And if we could, like we've never sold an eight week programme ever. Mm -hmm. We have Transition to Track Free, which is an eight week programme, like self-paced programme that you can work through removing your track, like removing tracking. But it's not an eight week to completely restore and heal your relationship with food. And, And there is a reason why we've never done that before. Even though if I spoke to any business person they would tell me that's something that you should be doing and we refuse to do it because we can't sell that in eight weeks and I definitely see this with people I speak to on social media who are like who have said oh you know I've been journaling for a few months now and nothing's really changed or I've been practicing mindfully in or I've stopped tracking for a few months now and nothing's really changed and I think it's really we never want to make you feel like you've not been doing enough Sometimes that might be the case and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, But I definitely see kind of two kind of camps after a couple of months. People that have sort of said, I've improved my relationship with food enough. Mm. Say three months in, I've improved my relationship with food. I'm ready to diet now. Because that's a common misconception. 99% of people that come to work with us want fat loss. People don't see that either because we don't sell transformation pictures. But most people do. And most of our clients who want fat loss eventually will obtain fat loss if that's still what they want yeah. once they've done the healthful work often first or the other side of things is people feeling like they've kind of um not achieved what they wanted and that's yeah. that expectation thing so I was looking up some statistics to see if I could get some for 
disordered eating recovery, just to give a little bit of a reference point. And realistically, so we know disordered eating doesn't really have a clear definition anyway. So I was looking more towards eating disorder uh, mm-hmm. recovery rates. And realistically, the statistics vary like so, so much. So um, there was a review in 2000. Um, this was Christopher Fairburn, who is a fantastic uh, researcher and author actually in this area. And I'm just going to read some of the statistics that he shared. So this was 2000. So this was quite a while ago. For bulimia, after five years, 41% are expected to recover naturally. So this is without treatment. For binge eating disorder, after five years, 35% are expected to recover naturally. So again, without treatment, 35%. Um, Around 60% of people with bulimia and binge eating achieve recovery after CBT, while only 35% do after interpersonal therapy, so slightly different. For anorexia, nearly 45% are expected to recover naturally. Between 40 to 60% of people uh, achieve recovery after CBT. So for reference... When you're working with us or all the stuff that we talk about with social media, it's kind of a mix. We're not cl- like we're not clinical um, psychologists or therapists. Beck as a trainee psychotherapist and um, Denai as a it's a psychological health coach. But we incorporate all of these techniques in there. Um, Jake Leonardin, who is a fantastic, again, fantastic researcher in area of knowledge in this in uh, person of knowledge in this area. Uh, highlighted that 50% of binge eating sufferers are expected to fully recover following psychotherapy. So the stats are not like incredible in Mm. terms of recovery. And what you see a lot of is people who kind of recover, so to speak, from one disordered eating habit and then maybe potentially pick up another. So Mm. like, I mean, you'll see this with bodybuilders, right? If you think of extreme dieting, like what kind of shift they tend to go through because that's obviously most like a lot of the types of clients that you work with right yeah yeah so after extreme dieting restriction even when they are perhaps even when they're back up at a healthy weight they'll still be binge eating and that'll be because they haven't done the work to improve their relationship with food they've not um got back in touch with their internal cues um i'll say potentially nine times out of ten people are still avoiding certain foods as well there's still um there's still a lot of rules and i can never say this rigidity (laughs) around foods um and that's why they struggle with the binge eating yeah for sure and i think this is part of the, the the problem you can have behavioural recovery, and again, we'll talk about this a little bit later. You can have behavioural recovery where you change your behaviours and on the outside it might look like things are fine. Um, <laughs> fine. <laughs> I absolutely favourite. Um, but maybe on the inside things are not necessarily, ha- they necessarily haven't caught up with that mm. yet. And so uh, you kind of touch on something that I think is really interesting, like the weight restored thing. Mm. The weight restored thing comes up again and again for hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery well I'm at my healthy weight so I should have my period back Yeah, such a common one or I'm at a healthy weight so I should be able to eat intuitively or I'm not hungry because I'm at a healthy weight therefore I shouldn't be binge eating and we put so much emphasis on weight right Yeah, and a lot of our clients so we work with clients in all body shapes and sizes and But a lot of our clients will be in a quote-unquote healthy way, according to BMI. But that doesn't have anything really to do with their habits or their binge eating. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I definitely see this, especially if we're working with people from the more restrictive side. So maybe the extreme diet side or um, orthorexia type side. Um, once they start to give themselves a little bit unconditional permission to eat and maybe gain a little bit of weight, there's this expectation that once you've got to that point, then things will just fall into place because, well, I'm healthy on I'm healthy on the outside. I look healthy on the outside, mm. whatever that actually means. But that definitely, I definitely see that a lot. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking as well when you said they've started practicing unconditional permission to eat, but so often you'll see there's still conditions around it in that, well, I'm allowing this, but it's only a certain amount. It's only on a day that I've trained. It's mm. only... Um, that's not unconditional permission to eat, though. For sure. It? For sure. And we actually had this discussion, yes, was it yesterday, when we were in bagels and I said to you, <laughs> I've just, I'd, I hadn't even realised that however many years down the line, I realised that only recently in the last year have I started eating bagels on top of each other. <laughs> you know, like... I've, I've, as a bagel. <laughs> as a bagel. And, or like sandwiches or anything like that. I would always say, I love peanut butter and jam, my ultimate fave. And I would have... A peanut butter and jam on one slice and peanut butter and jam on the other. But not together because I think it must have been like a food volume really in my head. Yeah. And then I'm obviously right now obsessed with bagels. Like I, um, we didn't have one today for lunch. Oh no, I did. I had one earlier. So I was so mindful. I actually forgot. <laughs> Great. Great example. But um, I really realised, I thought I must, that's still a food rule. Six years down the line after mm. I'd say I've re recovered my relationship with food and I'd still wasn't eating bales together I'd have them as a separate <laughs> just ludicrous so I think that's certainly common of sometimes after a couple of months of improving your relationship with food you you convince yourself and you say actually but I've given myself unconditional permission to eat I do eat bagels now or I do eat I don't know pizza on a Tuesday now but still only if you've changed on that Tuesday mm. or still if you hadn't had pizza at the weekend um and there's still like that little bit more depth to it that it's so easy to brush over, right? Mm. Yeah, it's, I think you touched on it earlier. It's like, well, it's better. Mm -hmm. But it's not as good as it could be, perhaps. Yeah, and and that's amazing to to have improved in some way. Mm -hmm. I just think sometimes our expectations are off. Yeah. Um. And so I thought it would be useful to talk about why it actually does take that little bit longer. And obviously the first thing is that you may have had these disordered or dysfunctional habits with food for years some of my clients are in their 60s and may have had these dysfunctional habits since they're they were teenagers mm -hmm. if not before that so if you think you've had those habits for 50 years it's going to probably take more than three months for you to remove them and also potentially it might take you three months just to even understand what they are yeah it's i mean i'm sure you have the same we'll start unpicking one food rule and then it's like a, a spider web. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, it came from here, here, here and here. Okay, <laughs> let's work through <laughs> Let's work through all of that then. Uh, yeah, exactly that. And it's so it always comes out as I'm binge eating or I'm restricting um, or like I, I'm stuck tracking or, you know, I've used food as a control. Those are like the, obviously the key brackets that we see. But it, like you said, it's like a thread and you pull it and it just mm. opens up this whole other world of like, oh, okay. And... The thing with a lot of the work that you might do yourself or at least initially with us is it's behavioural. So mm -hmm. behavioural things to help your relationship with food might be eating regularly or practising food neutrality um, and giving yourself unconditional permission to eat. But these are all, like we said, behavioural things and they only kind of scratch the surface. <laughs> 
And actually what you really want to do, and one of the reasons we include a lot more of the holistic stuff, the compassion work, mindfulness, somatic work, is that you develop these dysfunctional habits for a reason and you can put all the behavioural strategies in place that you want, but if you don't recognise the purpose that those dysfunctional habits are playing, then you can never restore your relationship with food beyond a certain point. Mm-hmm. And you might get to three months and have done all of that behavioural thing and think, well, why is it not working? And it's like, great. Now we've got these behavioural things in place. Let's see now what we can unpack underneath that. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. I was having a conversation with a client um, this weekend. She's going through quite a stressful time, deadlines for uni. She's like, I've just realised that I have been... I have been overeating again, but I've been telling myself it's fine because it's not as bad as it was before. Um, And it was also kind of the fact, why am I doing this? I don't understand. And like you said, it's served a purpose. That's been your coping mechanism in the past, even though she's done a heck of a lot of work over the past four months, something new's cropped up. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's normal that these things are going to be your go-to still. We just need to work on becoming more consistent with what you have been working on the tools that support you yeah how do you so obviously we all have the etphd method that we use right but we all have our own strengths and our own ways of coaching individually within that how do you what kind of questions journal queen (laughs) uh, what kind of questions do you use to kind of unpick the what role has this served for you do you do it as like a like a journal type thing or do you just have open conversations or how do you encourage people to understand what role that that behavior might have played um I think it depends on the individual where they're at because let's be honest journaling can be quite confrontational when uh, and you might not be in the space <laughs> <Can't really. laughs> you might not be in the space that you want to so sometimes it is conversation and just um understanding is it is it emotional? Is it an unmet need? Because again, that's something that I think until you do the deeper work, I, I stress it, I emotionally, is, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it? Um, but no, I think, I think question wise, kind of going back to journaling, it's, first of all, it's kind of I ask them to identify, just keep a note of when it happens. Like, are there any trends in the day, any feelings, any situations, any people that have um, potentially triggered uh, the episode? And then kind of, okay, that's where the feeling wheel comes in. What have you been feeling in that moment? Um, and did the food help? Mm-hmm. Did it offer some level of comfort? And then when we've got a better idea of, okay, these are the feelings, these are the the trends that we're seeing, what's going on here, what can we put in place to help you? Yeah. Do you know what, I think you've explained that so well because, uh, like I said, some of us on the team are therapists or psychotherapists, etc. But we don't go into, you know, this huge background of this is what happened when you were a child and this is where you <laughs> picked this up. It's beyond our scope as nutritionists, right? But we certainly will... It's certainly important to say, to recognise for yourself, like, when did I start binge eating? Like, can I think back to that time, what was maybe going on for me? And that is something that everyone can do. And we're using binge eating as a kind of 
proxy for mm. whatever your dysfunctional habit is. It's just in this moment we're talking about binge eating specifically, but I think it is always useful to look back at that. I like to kind of flip it on its head and think, and like kind of coming back to what we were saying at the beginning, I like to use disordered eating as like a bit of a thread of like, what's amazing about our disordered eating habits is that they're a message from our body telling us something and what a unique opportunity we then have to get curious about what's going on for us it's like your body is holding up a big sign that's like listen to me um act on this um like get curious whatever feels like the right phrase that your body would use right but it is very much like a really smack in the face sign and I'm not saying that it feels good. We like we know that it doesn't feel good and we're not glorifying it and saying that it's a good thing. But many people don't have these signs from their body and many people wake up in their 30s with, you know, um chronic pain or something else that's that hasn't been evident for their lives for the last 30 years of their lives and actually with disordered eating we can really lean into it if we're if it's scary. It's a really scary thing to do to <sighs> Like lean into, oh, I'm going to get curious about this thing that I really hate and I feel a lot of shame about. But that's why one of the reasons why we, we try to remove that shame, right? Because it's such a unique opportunity to really get curious. And if you can reframe it in that way and think, okay, this work on my relationship with food, it's not just about the end point so that I can diet. This work on my relationship with food is so that I can actually heal whatever's going on in my body so that actually my mental health is a lot more improved further down the line. Um, and I, I really like that kind of way of framing it. Mm. Um, I think something that comes up, and I know that we've had this conversation before, is sometimes people want to do a lot more when they start. So this might be working with us. It might be through social media. You know, we share a lot of stuff on social media about use this tool and mindfulness and self-compassion and the feelings wheel and this overeating resource. And there's so much and there's so much information. If you look at all the ETPHD team coaches, that put out just exceptional information. You've got seven good pieces of information at least every single day. If you implemented all of that once, it would just be like this waterfall of stuff. There's no way that you could implement it all at once. And the whole point, right, is that you start to become regular with one thing and then let's see what we can do next. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I always have the conversation with people when they first start and it's, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And that's because generally... They've come from a fat loss background and they're going for those quick results, whatever will get them to the goal the soonest. But we're on about, I mean, I always say to people whenever I have, have a call with them or whenever I uh, talk on, on WhatsApp with them, it's I want to be the last person you need to work with. We are building habits that are going to last a lifetime. So let's just take it back chill out for a minute and work on building that consistency because we're not going to know ultimately if you're doing everything we're not, not going to know what's working for you it might be I'm sure you're the same I have people that some things work really well but until you get consistent it's it's well some things don't work but you have to give it a chance to to show up whether it is or isn't the right tool for you for sure let's take so let's take mindfulness as an example someone with adhd might really struggle to meditate straight away like we might do other things like immersive activities mm -hmm. or breath work or mindful moments or something that's not meditation whereas other people might just fall straight into meditation and, and feel those benefits straight away and then with self-compassion some people 
can feel actually angry and I don't know if you've seen some of the clients you work with you can almost feel angry when you're trying to be self-compassionate because it feels so far-fetched and it feels like I don't believe this so Mm -hmm. I'm getting frustrated at myself and actually so for some people we might say let's start using maybe some affirmations or um, body gratitude etc and then for other people it might be okay well let's actually start working on what is self-compassion and the education behind it yeah because that's easier to get on board with than starting to say well I love myself and I love my body when I really don't feel that way at all so it's so different for everyone so we that's why again we don't have this method when other coaches come to work with us we don't say okay this is what you're going to do with every single client that you work Mm. with because it's not a one-size-fits-all exactly there's it is interesting because in the fitness community and I don't know if you're aware of this but in the fitness community a lot of business mentors will say you should have a like a flow of how you work yeah, with your framework. clients. Framework, yeah, framework. That's a <laughs> technical term. A framework of how you work with your clients. Yeah. And I remember years ago someone saying that to me, like, what's your framework? And I was like, mm-hmm. and at that time I had a bit of imposter syndrome and I was like, oh my God, I should have this framework of what I'm supposed to be doing. And then I realised, A, that didn't work for me and B, what person-centred coaching actually was. And I was like, mm, I don't think that's actually what we can do here. Yeah. We've got, you know, strands of focus. We've got tools that we use. But every client is different. And and that's why if you're not working with us and you're doing your relationship with food work yourself, it's important to kind of take tools from all of us. But you might resonate more with me or with Anna or with any of the other girls on the team. And it's important to kind of pick the things that you think I can implement that. And I'm going to promise to myself to commit to that for one week and then reassess rather than. I'm going to pick and choose all of these different bits and then try and put it all together. It's just not... And then feel completely overwhelmed. (laughs) Shocking. But also, a lot of people with disordered habits have very much perfectionist mindsets. Not everyone. (laughs) Not obviously me. Definitely not you. Foreign language stuff. But a lot of people do. And and so this need to like tick things off Mm. and this need to have some quantifiable results and be the best always want to be the best and and that can kind of backfire especially when it comes to your relationship with food right we know that imperfection is the ultimate way consistent imperfection is mm-hmm. the ultimate way for a healthy relationship with food not perfection in any way shape or form sometimes i catch myself when i'm doing updates and i'm like oh this is perfect and i'm like don't say that yeah <laughs> great work yeah yeah <laughs> always yeah. have to catch oh, myself like, that's a beautiful sea of green habit no yeah. i'm quite happy to see the occasional skip or yeah didn't achieve it because that's life yeah for sure um okay so what about then the people there are people that will dm us or people that we might work with who say after three months you know what i've healed my relationship with food after three months what do you think is going on there like do is that possible in your opinion what do you think is going on in my opinion you can have made progress some people might make great progress but you're not healed in three months. Interesting. I, and and this isn't me saying, I want your money. I want you to stay working with me for years and years. Genuinely, it's things have, things have been going well. Great. What's been going on in life? Have things been going well in life? Have you had, chances are there's not been any kind of, I say adverse, but do, yeah. do you know what I mean? Adversity. Yeah. yeah. That, I think sometimes it can be really helpful and people hate this when I say when they are doing updates and that I've I've had a really crappy week like xyz's happened no we need these moments because that highlights where we need to do the work and equally even if people are in a great place after three months 
I've had people come back to me because things have happened and it's just shown up in a different way. And they're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. There's still work to be done here. For sure. For sure. And I think this is the thing, like I'm the same as you, when something feels like, when someone feels like something is being challenging or going wrong, it's never like a positive of like a toxic positive of no. like, oh, this is amazing that you've just broken up with your boyfriend <laughs> and, you know, your job is stressing you out. This is great. It's not about saying that, but it's about, OK, this is a really good time now to lean on all of mm-hmm. these things. See what's what's stuck and actually what needs a little bit more intention. The thing is, I think. Here's what I think. Some people will work with us who maybe overeat a little bit, maybe kind of have good food bad food mentality but a lot of it is habit Mm -hmm. and after three months the habit is broken because it's been repeated multiple times they've they you know they've worked on their relationship with food for that long that after three months actually they're in a pretty good place and in that situation so we might have clients like that and they'll then enter a fat loss phase they'll Mm -hmm. still they'll still be doing a lot of their relationship with food work alongside the fat loss but after three months they genuinely might be in a position to drop body fat and i'd certainly have clients like that yeah and you know that being said we've got some clients that enter fat loss straight away too so this is certainly not saying this is everyone but um, for people who maybe have more dysfunctional habits so it, it it can be the case that you're dysfunctional habits maybe are not as ingrained or as deep rooted as other people Mm -hmm. and you know I think sometimes we tend to over pathologize some things I don't necessarily think that's the case with us Um, we're mindful of that and and most of the people that do work with us do need that little bit deeper work right but Mm -hmm. on Instagram you can over pathologize literally everything like if you know if I ate a bagel now someone might be like well you've eaten a bagel but you've you've actually only got light cream cheese on it which I did have on my cheese not full fat cream cheese there must be something wrong with you and it's like no I just prefer that like everyone like there's always something deeper if you look for it Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes with our own habits we can kind of think am I am I doing it because I've got some sort of deep-rooted challenge I need to heal my inner child or am I just doing it because it's a habit (laughs) and so some people do just have habits and once they break them in you know in three months then that and they're in a lot better place um i also think sometimes after three months like i said at the beginning you've done the behavioral work and nothing's quote unquote gone wrong in your life so far and so you're you think i'm eating regularly i'm not overeating i've got a good relationship with exercise everything's good and that's what it looks like to quote unquote heal your relationship with Mm. food after three months and often Often those are the types of people that maybe will then go on and do something else and then maybe come back and realise actually there was something else going on there that they didn't quite realise. So we're certainly not saying that, you know, this is people that work with us and people that we speak to on social media about this stuff because obviously a lot of people that kind of work with us do it by proxy, by just following us on social media and us having those conversations. And we're certainly not saying that you can't A, make progress because you make a hell of a lot of progress in three months. Mm. Or even get to the point where you're like you're comfortable after three months. It's just that for a lot of people, that's just scratched the surface and you've got a really fantastic, healthful routine. And then it's like, okay, well, like now what's next? Mm. And I think sometimes it's, it's usually at the three month mark, people t- tend to start to see challenges with their family or their work or whatever. I don't know if anyone's life kind of cruises for more than a three-month period. I mean, if it does, tell me how. <laughs> like, that'd be great. Same pocket and sell it. We will buy it. <laughs> no, like, yeah, we'll buy it. Um, but I think that we have to recognise whenever you enter any sort of um, 
behavior change model or any sort of stage of behavior change you're looking going through these stages of behavior change so when you come to work with us there's like these five stages of behavior change and when you come to work with us you're in that kind of action phase the stages that come before that are um pre-contemplation contemplation preparation action maintenance right so those are the five stages but in that action phase is when you've kind of you've made a decision i know that there's something wrong because often before that, especially in pre-contemplation, you're not even accepting that there's anything wrong. You're kind of in a bit of denial and obviously not somewhere I ever visit. <laughs> um, and then you kind of start thinking, oh, maybe there's something wrong. And then you get into this stage where you're actually taking action. There's a stage in the behavior change model called relapse. And there's a stage there for a reason. Because it's expected at some point that things will be hard. And it's expected at some point that you will... I prefer the phrase lapse rather than relapse when it comes to disordered eating recovery. Because food disordered eating is not an addiction mm -hmm. and this change this behavior change model is often used when it comes to addiction but it, i like to think of it as a lapse because it's kind of a necessary part of overall progress of kind of taking a step back a little bit to then move forwards again so what would the difference between a lapse and a slip up be i don't think there's a difference between a lapse and a slip up i think slip up or a lapse are kind of the same and then like a relapse is like relapse kind of is framed as like right i've gone back to square one and that's often, if you frame it as a relapse, that tends to be where you then eat everything in sight and you enter like the fuck it bucket, right? Mm. Whereas if you just go, oops, I've had a slip up and I ate I ate mindlessly last night, but I'm, I'm going to choose to crack on. It's a much more compassionate way of being. And that's why I think it's quite helpful to not call food an addiction as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you then think, if you count, say, binge eating as an addiction and then you binge eat one night, the next day it's like, oh, I'm an addict and I'm, I back identifying with that behavior again whereas if you think oh, well that that behavior was something that I did but it's not who I am mm. then you can kind of move through it not identifying with it in that way yeah yeah um I think some like what do you think are the reasons why people don't move as quickly through this as they hoped other than their expectations were a little bit too high mm. think there's I think there's often some resistance because as we said earlier that habit's serving a purpose right now and going without it feels really uncomfortable um I think as well some clients do just go through some shit <laughs> for the first three months and you're like I've not I don't I don't think I've had anyone that said I've not made any progress at all, but they've like, I should have made more progress. You know, you've just been through hell and back. So, mm -hmm. And also, I think, especially with those people, like sometimes we don't quantify the stuff. When we look at health, we think of flourishing health, right? Mm. And when we're thinking of flourishing health, we're thinking of it in a much more holistic sense. We're thinking of relational health, spiritual health, physical health, psychological health, like kind of how well you're, quote unquote, thriving in life. You can't quantify thriving like how do what does that look like um and especially on social media i mean that looks like a lie most of the time um so i think sometimes again like you said if you're coming from a fat loss background be very mindful when you're looking at have i made any progress to not look at it in terms of scale weight measurements um and the quantifiable stuff you might found, have found that you've reduced the severity of your overeating, mm -hmm. but maybe you're still overeating, but it's not, you, you've got, you feel like you've got a bit more control over that. Yeah. Huge, huge win. 
to move from binge eating to overeating is an incredible shift. And I often think that st- living with overeating and not moving into binge eating is harder and more indicative of improving your relationship with food mm. than not overeating at all yeah. and not binge eating. Because I think this is not always the case for sure, right? But don't you think that sometimes when you're not overeating at all, it's because it comes from a place of over control. Yeah. And actually that's only a short term solution. And you can see that after three months too of like, well, this is just that short term. I've ticked all the boxes. I've got all my green stars or mm. gold stars. Um, <laughs> and you think, think that because you're not overeating they're in a really good place and some people some people are some people genuinely are but other people sometimes it just comes from that place of a little bit more control and actually if we loosened that control a little bit what would happen yeah yeah no I definitely I think a sign of a healthy relationship with food is that there will be occasional overeating but the fact that you can do it and not feel guilt or shame or restrict compensate in any way afterwards just accept it for what it is Mm -hmm. that you are human and this happens whether that's because it's emotional whether it's because the food was just so damn tasty that you I mean I'm thinking of the tacos (laughs) last night I was just gonna say that I was like you should have seen what we ate last night (laughs) but like it's perfectly human Mm -hmm. and having that acceptance is a solid sign of a healthy relationship with food and I think We've talked about this on previous episodes, like the mindfully mindless in the fact that you're aware of what you're doing and you're choosing to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. That was definitely me last night. That was definitely us last night. So mm. just for reference, what did we have? We had, I had a mezcal Rita. You had something with squirt in it. That's all I <laughs> Something, oh, it was tam- tamarind linda. She got a tamarind know. straw. <laughs> She's not a fan of the tamarind straw. Um, but it was delicious. And then we had esquites, I say it. It's Mexican street corn and guacamole and chips and tacos and refried beans. And it was just, I'm going to be honest, it was exceptional. It's better than most of the Mexican I had when I was in Playa del Carmen for three months. It was really good. And we both went home and then I was like, I'm going to have a slice of this fudge bar. And you were like, no, I'm done. And then you had some M&Ms and we were like, we were both went to bed. We kind of rolled into bed a little bit, but it was, (laughs) it was, it was, we were, we knew what we were doing. We were mindfully Mm. overeating. And actually something we said the other day was like, I think I said to you when we were having donuts, I was like, the novelty never wears off. The novelty of being able to overeat and just be like, okay, let's go to bed, see you in the morning Mm. and then crack on with life this morning it never wears off. So if you do feel like this timeline of improving your relationship with food is dragging, it might feel like that. Sometimes that's totally normal. But you, as long as you're seeing some improvements in, in, in any part of this, whether it's, oh, I went out for dinner and I didn't overeat when I got home because I didn't feel guilty for going out for dinner. Mm-hmm. Or even just I let myself go out for dinner. Or I chose a food that I've not had for so long. These things are such big wins. And if you're, are still struggling with looking at things through the lens of fat loss which is again super common think about allowing yourself these foods now means that one day in the future when you do pursue fat loss you're going to be able to maintain that because you're not going to care that there's a bagel in front of you because you've allowed yourself that bagel anytime that you wanted it really um so your fat loss maintenance moving forward will be infinitely better and because i do think sometimes I think sometimes when you look at relationship with food, people think of it like it's a false dichotomy, right? But people think of it as like you either improve your relationship with food or you get fat loss. And it's like, mm. no, you, imp- if for many of you, 
you're improving your relationship with food so that you can maintain fat loss. Yeah. That's kind of a pro- that's a that's a last thing for us. Mm-hmm. But if it's important to you, then it's important to us, right? You're re- really doing it to improve your overall health. But if you need to think about it in terms of fat loss, at least for some point of that, we're not going to take that away from you. Whilst also obviously quizzing you on what does fat loss mean to you and mm-hmm. Is it like the arrivals fallacy? Are you looking for fat loss to be happy? And obviously we'd have those discussions too. So there's those discussions you should have with yourself, <laughs> obviously. I think one thing too is you kind of touched on this a little bit when you said there's sometimes resistance to improving your relationship with food. Mm. The average time someone applies to work with us is about four. And one of the reasons for that is that it's scary. I think the other reason or one of the other reasons is that a lot of people don't want to let it go because, and then I remember having this discussion with one of the other coaches at one point um, who hasn't gone through binge eating themselves. And I remember saying, binge eating is a source of joy. Mm-hmm. Binge eating is a source of comfort. It's a source of safety. It's a friend. It is something that logically we want to get rid of most of the hours of the day. But for those few hours of the day possibly every day we don't want to get rid of it Mm -hmm. and so let's take an example of someone that sees a post that you've put up on social media and they say do you know what it's a monday morning and they feel really bad obviously classic (laughs) they're feeling really um uncomfortable because maybe they struggled with their relationship with food specifically over the weekend they overeat the weekend and then they see your post on the monday and they say do you know what anna really gets this i want to stop this so they email you, you have a chat and then it gets to, you know, Tuesday night, you've got a call booked on Wednesday. It gets to Tuesday night and they've fallen into another binge on Tuesday night. And at that moment, it's like, do you know what? No, I need this. I need this. And so it comes to your call on Wednesday and it's like, you don't show up for the call or, you know, you cancel the call. Because it's so understandable that that feels, you don't want to let that go. Mm-hmm. and we understand that and, and it really is sometimes about that's why a lot of the somatic work is really important because ultimately feelings of anxiety feelings of loneliness feelings of fear will come with removing these disordered habits because they have been your source of kind of trying to at least squash those feelings for so long so when you start to remove them we expect you to feel a sense of grief a sense of loss and allowing yourself space to feel those things and not thinking that's a sign that you shouldn't be doing the work mm-hmm. is so, so important. That's why what, one some of the stuff that we'll do is allowing you to feel that, encouraging you to feel that, mm-hmm. and then helping you to meet those needs in yourself in another way. Yeah, I think that's something important to remember is that it's okay to miss it. Mm-hmm. So often we get that question. Yeah, it is, and... I think that I think removing shame from it helps a lot. Mm. So you remove the shame from the binge eating, but then you then feel shame because for missing miss it. it. And it's yeah. like, why? Well, do we need to get like Glenn and Doyle in here to be like, no? Or I mean, Brene's probably <laughs> kind of. Look, I was trying to not go with Brene first. I was yeah. like, I'll talk about someone else, but I've I've messed up. I should have just gone with Brene. Um, but that's why we need to, like we need to work on shame. That's why when we're talking about our own stories, like. I'm not embarrassed to say that I feel all of those things about binge eating. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say it retrospectively. Of course it is. Um, and I might have felt ashamed at the, at the time, but I, thought, I wish at the time I'd heard someone else say, this is how I feel. And I'd be like, oh, oh, mm. this is not in my head. Um, it's not. It's all so common. Yeah. Even when you were talking about it, I was like, do you know what? 
that hour or two in the evening was just happy time for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we're looking, I think, at recovery, I think one thing, final thing that I really want to say is recovery from disordered eating is not about just removing the disordered eating habits. Recovery from disordered eating is finding joy, is allowing food to add to your life again, mm. is not being preoccupied with food in your body so that you can live life to the fullest. That's really hard to quantify. Recovery from disordered eating is not just, okay, I no longer track or I no longer feel the need to diet necessarily. It really is. And I think, you know, we touched at the beginning about some of the clients that have worked with us for years. And it's not because they have disordered relationships with food anymore. It's because actually we're doing some more work on maybe business or, mm -hmm. you know, dating or finding joy everywhere else. And like one of my clients in particular is doing a lot of work on, she wants to do a yoga teacher training and, and the spiritual side of things. And so her health focuses a lot on the spiritual side of things. And to me, that's what recovery from disordered eating is like mm. overcoming binge eating or regaining your period um, or removing your food rules. Those things or achieving fat loss. Those things are all like maybe step four, five, six. And then it's like, okay, seven, eight, nine, ten is like where the real beauty begins. Yeah. And and that's where you find like the joy and the, the realization of what improving your relationship with food actually does. Yeah. Or the doors that open as a result. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything else you want to add? I don't think so. No. Okay. Excellent. Um, as always, if you want to message us about any of these things, feel free to, to drop us, any of us a DM or any of the coaches um, a DM or an email. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And... As always, if you did, please do feel free to like, share, subscribe and review. And if you would like to chat to me, then you can find details of my Instagram in the show notes.